Welcome to the Science Witch Podcast, where we explore how science and witchcraft intersect, interact, and affirm one another. I'm your co-host, Angel. And I'm your co-host, Anku. And this is our 41st episode. And for this episode, Angel and I are going to be talking about trees. Initially, in honor of Arbor Day, but we'll get into that, uh, we're going to talk about some of our favorite trees that we've encountered, some infamous trees, some unique and fascinating trees. We'll be talking about the sociology of trees, a little bit of the science of trees, and lots of other related topics. Especially how to synergize spirituality with the science of trees, which is what we here at the Science Witch Podcast really love to do. Yes, yes. Always a fertile topic for our random digressions down all of the rabbit holes. And it's been a while since we've done an episode where Inku and I just are having a conversation. And a lot of our episodes recently have been really great interviews, but we also like to just get together and have a conversation about a particular topic and share it with y'all, our listeners out there. Yeah, yeah. And with the way this current Mercury retrograde has been treating us, it's probably better if we don't suck other people into the tornadoes that (laughs) technology is currently bringing to our doorsteps. Yeah. And I know that this Mercury retrograde has been hitting you particularly hard. So we'll be we'll be gentle with (laughs) uh, keeping that in mind for our podcasting. Yes. Something really cool about this episode mm-hmm. is that, well, this is our 41st episode, and back in episode 19, that was a long time ago, we did an episode called Big Tree Energy, all about trees. So we're revisiting that episode. It'd be a great one to also check out if this is a topic that you're into. And gosh, what did we talk about in that episode. What, well, what we recall? talked about some specific big trees. We talked mm-hmm. about the tallest trees, the oldest trees, the as widest well. trees. Yes, we we went through all of the trees that are the goat in their category. Mm-hmm. And then we talked a little bit about spirituality in relation to trees and the Axis Mundi and some of the Jungian theories. So That is all something that we talk about in that previous episode. and Some of which might come up again. Right, of course. I mean, these are sort of perennial topics for us, but we, this is a- Old growth topics. Old growth topics. This is a companion episode to this episode. So I'll make sure to link it in the show notes if you want to learn more about big trees from that episode. And we'll try to cover more things specifically about trees as a concept and then round it out with some other cool trees that we want to talk about that have sort of been named and have their own presence and entity. I was going to mention that the last big tree episode we did, episode 19, was the first one that we did together. So it's a really good cyclical feeling coming back to it. And for those listeners who 
have watched our development across these last, how long have we been doing this together? So we've been podcasting together, I believe for two years. And then the podcast is about to hit its three-year anniversary. Right. Let me see. So people interested in how the podcast has developed and how our style has developed together, it would be a fun contrast to listen to the very first one. And then this one, I think we've grown a lot in the last couple of years. We found our voice. That episode was June 26th of 2021. So almost two years. Yeah. Yeah. We've had, we've added two more rings to our trunk. Yes, we have. Since that episode, since we symbioted, is that what we would say, you and I? We've formed our mutualistic symbiosis through the podcast. Woohoo. Man, plans are so cool. They are. Just always applicable. So I think we wanted to start off this one thinking about the question of what is a tree? What is a you tree? Know? You know, there was actually just a Scientific American article that was really interesting about how a lot of these commonplace terms that we use, like tree or penguin, what pops into your head is often so different from what pops into someone else's head that talk past each other a lot, which is why in science, we have to operationalize our terms. So yeah, Mm -hmm. let's operationalize the concept of tree. How do we know if we're looking at a tree? How do we know if we're looking at a tree? Well, Plato would say that there's an eternal tree in the world of images and all that we see is just reflections off that but i don't think that meets the science part of the science which podcast so what the scientific definition seems to be is a plant so it's in the kingdom plantier is that right kingdom plantier yeah has to be woody so it's not herbaceous Mm -hmm. so it has to have a sort of a bark and a woodiness to it this is why bananas are not trees they're just like giant herbs because they're not woody. Trees are usually tall with branches and that grow from a trunk or a couple of trunks. So it's sort of separating out tree from shrub, although it's kind of an arbitrary distinction. Arbitrary? Uh, or, <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, so, <laughs> so yeah, Trees, they tend to have a trunk and they are living creatures of wood. I think that's the only thing that we can say. So like a cactus is not a tree. Right. Even the saguaros that are giant are not a tree because they're they're not woody. Well, they can get rather woody towards Mm. their base, but it's, it's a different type of compound than lignin, which is what that forms the wood cells. Lignin, it's the most recalcitrant natural substance. Mm -hmm. And that is what we consider to be wood. Whereas a saguaro, I believe has another comp a structural compound i should probably look that up without so i don't sound (laughs) like i'm talking out my ass but i do believe that is one of the distinctions and yeah the evolution of lignin was really interesting also in the history of mushrooms because mushrooms were the first creatures that could eat the lignin Mm -hmm. so when lignin developed in plants my understanding is trees just took over because nothing could go against them and then like fungi do, they came in and they were like, no, your age is over. And that's when we got the giant fungi and then evolution moved on. Yeah. Lignin. Lignin. Yeah. Fungi are the only 
organisms on the planet that produce the lignanese and it's only certain species of Mm -hmm. fungi like turkey tails turkey tails are one of the only organisms that has the enzymatic activity to be able to break down wood and that's another reason why fungi are so important to everything but we're going to talk about trees and we do have both of us have had a long and you know we both can say that we were born loving trees and mm-hmm. having a deep emotional connection with trees. I was reflecting on my progression through the environmental movement on Earth Day recently. And one of the things I realized about myself is that I've always had a really emotional connection to nature. And that was something that When I was still in grad school, I feel people would say was a detriment to be that emotionally attached to your study subject. But I feel as I've gotten older, it's something that is empowering to have both a scientific and spiritual appreciation of the thing you're studying. And so trees just have this long history, both in human culture and in my own life of always inspiring me to have a connection with them. And I recently, when I was visiting down home last April, I got to visit one of the trees that made me a witch. And it was a magnolia tree, a Southern magnolia tree. Oh my God, they're in bloom right now. I ate a magnolia bloom right off of, or a petal right off of the tree behind my house. It was, yeah. it was wonderful. I love Southern Magnolias. They are one of those quintessential trees that will always have a very important personal meaning to me. And Same so here. some of my earliest memories were climbing up in this particular Southern Magnolia tree and telling the tree stories. Hmm. And that was one of the first relationships in nature I can vividly remember and I recently went back and I found that same tree so that same tree was still there so I got to make that reconnection with that inner child of mine that always loved trees that inner child that's still up there telling stories to that magnolia huh Mm -hmm. yeah yeah but through podcasts but about you podcasts oh my gosh I do absolutely love love trees. Magnolia to me, I always think of as like the prime climbing tree. Mm-hmm. I absolutely love climbing trees. In fact, for my recent birthday, I, I bought a set to help me climb trees. So I've been tr- climbing the pecan tree behind my house and that's been really nice. I did get stuck up there one time and Trogan had to come just monitor my way back down because I'm also old. But yeah, magnolias, I love the flowers. I love climbing them. I just recently learned that they're, the flowers are edible. Uh, They are so potent. Apparently, they're mainly used in Britain, and they pickle them. I might try pickling some of those. They do that in Japan, too. Oh, cool. With Japanese magnolias. You pickle the Japanese magnolia petals, and you can eat them. Yeah. Yeah, I just took some chunks out of it, and it was intense. Yeah, it would Um, be like eating perfume because it's such a fragrant Very much. But yeah, right now I've, I've last couple of years really developing relationships with several different tree species. There's the mimosa. I call her mamamosa that I'm looking at right now. She just has two flowers. 
And I've been bonsaiing her limbs down to make the flowers easier to harvest for medicine. Gosh, I, I just love her. I've been hanging out a lot with some live oak down here on the farm, getting to know crepe myrtle a lot more mm, and like mm-hmm. working with shaping crepe myrtle and working with crepe myrtle as a medicinal. We have some amazing swamp cypresses that just the best energy, like the best place in the whole property to meditate is with one of the cypresses. I found a holly tree recently that I've been hanging out with. So yeah. Oh, and oh my gosh. And we're at just overrun with pine. Yeah. Um, I know we'll be talking about land management and forest management later, but ooh, the last few years has been a big lesson in tree landscape support. Right. It's, yeah. It's not something to be taken lightly for sure. It's something that I feel we've had to develop more as it's become a crisis point. But before we get to that, we wanted to talk really briefly about Arbor Day, Mm, which is mm -hmm. sort of the reason that we are releasing this episode at this particular point. We found some things that were problematic about the origins. Yeah. And I mean, so this is something that I've, I think both of us have just really started learning about in thinking about this episode. So we're definitely not experts and we welcome corrections or questions from listeners who might know more about this topic. Mm -hmm. But it very much seems from looking at the Arbor Day Foundation website and then, you know, researching a little bit beyond that. Although I think Arbor Day is great now in a lot of ways, but that it's history seems to be rooted very much in westward expansion and manifest destiny and white supremacist Mm -hmm. takeover of the land and turning the prairies into forests and bulking up the forests so that the the national forest in Nebraska right now part of its history it's that's also part of the history of Arbor Day because Arbor Day was founded in Nebraska kind of as part of this effort yeah just the drastic change of the landscape to suit white colonial settlers in a way that i'm sure involved the dislocation and disruption and murder and genocide of other people. Yeah, I feel like we need to know that, how insidious even something as hopeful as Arbor Day can be. Because American history, right? Because American history, exactly. So as part of our mission here with the Science Witch podcast in finding the synergy with science and spirituality, as well as decolonializing our thinking, we wanted to share some information about both forest management and approaching trees as sovereign beings in of themselves. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And also this brings up the meta conversation of how humans are part of the natural environment. And one of the ways that we're finding that this is something that we have to be cognizant of and start investing in the modalities that allow us to be better stewards of the land is especially out here in the West in regards to wildfire. Mm -hmm. And anybody who lives out on the West Coast has been affected because we have a huge portion of our population living in these wildland urban interfaces. Mm -hmm. And these are areas where the forests and a lot of urban developments are like right up against each other. And 
over the course of the last hundred years, we're starting to realize that the fire suppression policies of the National Forest Service were causing there to be catastrophic wildfires because fires were an important component and aspect to managing the environment for healthy, stable, and vibrant forests. And this fire was introduced by humans as a management tool. And there's a lot of indigenous wisdom and indigenous practices of using fire in the land as part of the sacred stewardship between the people and the land. And then, of course, with the establishment of the National Forest Service and all of these policies that were in the mindset of white supremacy and settler understanding of forest as just a resource, the fire suppression policies created this environment where you have a lot of trees that would have been cleared from the land with indigenous fire practices that have been Mm -hmm. allowed to grow up into the forest. And basically, this has caused these other trees to cause heavy burden on the resource allocation in the forest. And so these overgrown forests are more strapped for both nutrients as well as water. And then these smaller trees that are overgrown in the environment, of course, carry fire into the landscape much easier. And that is among the many factors that are contributing to these catastrophic wildfires in the West. And I recently got to visit the World Forestry Center in Portland, and they have a really incredible art installation that talks about wildfire by using these large beeswax circles that Uh they then burn certain woods and then use the smoke to create these interesting patterns in the art installation. Each piece in the art installation talks about wildfire and the Mm -hmm. cost of wildfire and how this has become something that we have to become better stewards to the land. We have to start listening to the indigenous wisdom and bringing back these management strategies and the sacred work of being good stewards, because especially out here in the West, we've had just so many catastrophic wildfires. I have to say that since I moved to Oregon, there hasn't been a year that there hasn't been some catastrophic wildfire that I've had a personal connection to. And then in 2020 was just one of the worst environmental existentialist moments of my whole life Mm. when the sky was red and there were fires everywhere and the fires destroyed some of my favorite wildlands. Well, not destroyed, but I won't be able to go to Opal Creek for Mm. at least another five to 10 years because of the wildfire damage. And Opal Creek is one of the most beautiful places in the state. And then of course, down in California, especially in the Sierra Nevadas, there was the town of Paradise, California, Mm -hmm. where 54 people were just killed because of the fires that were moving so quickly through the wildland interface that people weren't able to escape. It has become increasingly this huge crisis out here in the West to 
reintegrate this indigenous wisdom about wildfire as a tool in management of the landscape, changing the way that we as Western late stage capitalism, what our relationship is with forests and trees. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I think reclaiming that wisdom also has to include empowering and employing and giving power to indigenous people yes. as well. Not that they're all stewards of some ancient mystical knowledge, but that we need to be taking care of the people and their descendants who have taken care of this land for so long before our governments and the white settler colonialism just came in and screwed everything up. I mean, down here in the Southeast, we don't have the wildfire issue, thank all the gods, but we do have a lot of environmental issues caused by the exact same thing. Right. Because when the Europeans came in and with this ideology that Native Americans were just one with nature, the other side of that is the Europeans were writing, oh, this is a total paradise. Food just falls out of the sky. And that's true because... Native American communities did the work to create that. They were intimately involved with burning and with cultivating and with planting. So there were all of these ongoing pecan orchards down here and lands that were set up for hunting that were specifically designed to provide the right amount of nutrition and ecosystem for deer and other fauna, but also to make it easy to hunt in mm -hmm. those lands. I've been growing the Seminole pumpkin this year that I'm really excited about because it was one of the forest food crops that the Europeans just walked by and was like, oh, just random plants. They didn't see anything of the achievement that right. the ecosystem was in connection with the people that were here with the Tamuqua and with the Seminole and with the Cherokee and with the Crete. Yeah. So I'm in a situation now where I am hanging out with a plot of land that was planted for pine plantation and horribly mismanaged. It's too mm -hmm. wet. So they had to rip up the ground with these big rivets and they overplanted it and then neglected it. So it didn't thin out. And a lot of what you were talking about out West is the same thing here. The forests are just eaten up with grapevines and we don't have kudzu on my land, thankfully, but trying to be in relationship with the land and thin out and try to bring in what native species would have been here without that massive disruption is a big part of my process that I'm trying to work with here. Over 90% of the old growth and quote unquote virgin forests are gone and we'll never get those back, but we could be doing a lot better <laughs> to try and recreate some of those habitats. And the other thing, especially with pine, is that fire is really important to Mm -hmm. The germination cycle of specifically longleaf pine species, yeah. which are the native trees of a lot of the Gulf Coast and Southeast area. Mm -hmm. And in order for them to germinate, they need these small, low fires that they have co-evolved to release the seeds so that they right. will then germinate. And the same thing right. goes with the ponderosa pine out here in the West is that it needs fire mm. to finish its life cycle, to have a complete life cycle. So this whole understanding of fire is something that 
the dominant white supremacist late-stage capitalism is having to quickly understand and integrate back into these larger complex systems of urban land development because at this point, especially out here in the West, it's crucial. It's absolutely critical that we start understanding fire cycles and introducing them into the landscape again, but also making sure that we do it in a way that isn't going to completely disrupt and displace people, which is the other side of it. And it's this constant dance between the public and then also forest management to help reintroduce fire and thinning into the forest so that we can start clearing out some of this overgrowth that we don't cause us to have these catastrophic wildfires, but at the same time being sensitive to where the smoke from these fires is going to decrease the air quality and just being really mindful and taking a lot of investing a lot of research into what are the best ways to manage forests. And one of the things that the timber industry is starting to do, and this was something that they featured at the World Forestry Center, is integrating these management practices of thinning and prescribed burning and then taking the trees that they thin, mechanically removing them and using these smaller, less quality wood products to create mm. composite wood products that are then right. stronger and more resilient and better to use in building projects. So the situation has become that we have to mechanically thin these forests anyway. We might as well develop more of our wood use from these activities that are going to be needed to be done anyway. And right. so that is one of the ways that forest management and the timber industry have started coordinating more of their efforts. But we still get a lot of our wood from imported from all over and the wood that as often in times from some of these other parts of the world, it is from illegal farming and mm -hmm. there are NGOs and groups that are looking to try to certify the wood that we get, but the demand for wood is so high that it's really hard to continue to have these standards that are making sure that we're not utilizing old growth forests in our consumption of wood products. And right. this brings into the conversation of how sustainable is it for us to continue using wood as our main mm. structural building material. And yeah. I really feel like at this point, we have to start prioritizing forests for their carbon sink mm -hmm. services that they provide, as well as valuing them as intact in of themselves. Right. And that when we do manage them, we're not managing them to take from them, but we're managing them to be healthier as a ecological system. And yeah. utilizing more techniques of the selective thinning as a way to clear the underbrush, but also doing it in a way that isn't going to create soil disturbance, which is a huge problem with the lumber industry. Even with all of the regulations that they have to replant trees, 
and make sure that the trees are managed in a way that keeps soil erosion and landslides from happening, there's still some areas that this is a huge problem. And really, the more that we just only see forests as these places that we can extract value from, as opposed to manage to be the healthy ecosystems that will provide us all the services and be inherently value within themselves. That is something I feel like we as humans will have to shift in our perspective of how we view forests because there's a lot of new technology that is giving us the ability to use building materials like hemp Mm -hmm. and, of course, 3D printing with various new polymers that can create building structures that are far more flexible in terms of the ability to withstand earthquakes and floods. So these are things that I really feel hopeful that we will value forests as the intact ecosystems and manage them for forest health as opposed to just extracting the resources from them and using the resources that we have to justify protecting them. Right, right. And I I feel like this might be even a little more visible to people, especially after the great toilet paper shortages Mm -hmm. of the COVID pandemic, right? We use trees for building materials and for so many different kinds of products. And especially, I didn't know before that, that toilet paper has to come from, can't really be recycled because it has to be soft. Some little avenues for hope. In Bolivia, they did sign a Mother Earth law that basically encapsulates, I think, what you're expressing there, that nature is something to be in relationship with and should have rights and not just something to be exploited. Harkening back to another episode of kind of the metaphor of some of these environments as really closely related to like the whore of Babylon. Mm. In many of our perspectives, the earth is our mother, right? Mm -hmm. But when we turn her into a commodity, we like force her. Not that sex work isn't work and that we Mm -hmm. don't believe sex workers should be empowered because they definitely should. But people also shouldn't be forced into being hyper-exploited in any job to the point that they are dying. Yeah, The same thing goes with forests. What's that? The same thing goes with forests. And the same thing goes for forests. But I do remember where I was going with that. With the Mother Earth Law... You know, it's not just about protecting forests from being ripped up for wood. It's also because so much of forest loss is for agriculture. Many of us in the States are like, we feel really good about being vegetarian, but the soy that we're eating is from the actual destruction of massive swaths of forest. Imagine how many animals died for a soy burger when that forest was cleared off for massive, intensive, poisonous soy production, you know, it kind of calls into, for me, it calls into question some of the consumerist ethical models that many of us have been working on in in different ways. And I live in a rural area right now where I see a lot of agriculture and so much of the conventional large-scale agriculture, they're just death fields. Mm -hmm. It's just, they're deserts that they pump chemicals into and then get crops and then pump more chemicals into. And all of that was forest not that long ago. And every time I drive to work, I'm seeing more forest being destroyed. And it it does when they first rip it up and they rip all of the root balls up from all of the trees and they're just scattered across this dusty gray mm-hmm. landscape with 
verdant forest on either side. You can see what it used to be. And it's heartbreaking. That was a dark turn. But one of the ways that we can shift our perspective in valuing forests as sacred is, Mm -hmm. again, bringing the synergy of science and spirituality. Because a lot of the integrated management practices from indigenous wisdom is also rooted in this idea that we are stewards of the land and that the land and the trees are sacred. And this is how we become part of this cycle. Of course, having a spirituality that is affirmed by science is why we're here at the Science Witch Podcast. When we can incorporate spirituality into our approach to things like forest management practices, it has this important way of integrating back some of the spiritual ideas that will hopefully allow us to value forests for their inherent sacredness and not just exploit them until late stage capitalism has destroyed everything. Mm. I feel called to read a quote real quick that comes to mind. So this is a quote that we, we might return to this book later if we have time. I Danu Forest called Celtic Tree Magic about Oum lore and Druid mysteries and I was flipping through it and the first words of the book are, trees are distinctly mysterious and magical beings. Few people are not moved by the deep presence felt in a forest grove or by the soothing hush of wind and branches. Regardless of religion or culture, humanity has long held trees to be beloved kin. Valuable for a host of practical reasons, they are also sacred by many ancient peoples as wise elders and homes to spirits and otherworldly beings. We can walk that line, right? And as people always have, forests have always been places of power and wisdom and also resources. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, that's, I think, part of our challenge, which actually comes up a lot in the mm-hmm. ancient myths that we have about trees. And I looked over several and thought about which ones would be good to talk about. And the two that really came to mind for me were the cypress trees in the Epic of Gilgamesh mm-hmm. and Demeter's poplar tree. And so in the Epic of Gilgamesh, which is the oldest extant writing that we have or written story that we have, they talk about this Lebanon cypress or the, the cypress forest of Lebanon. Quick tie in to monotheism. This is the forest that was supposedly planted by Noah after the flood, because maybe Christianity borrowed the idea of the flood from the Epic of Gilgamesh, almost definitely. But in the Epic of Gilgamesh, did I say Christianity borrowed? The Torah borrowed borrowed that story. But in the Epic of Gilgamesh version, Gilgamesh wants to destroy the cedars of Lebanon and harvest them for his town. Because back in the day, trees were oil of Mm -hmm. contemporary imperialism. The bigger trees you brought in, the bigger construction you could do. And Mm -hmm. to have the biggest tree in the region cut off in the pillar of some whatever was like a big deal, apparently. So he convinced his Enkidu, his half-beast companion, who I obviously love, and uh, they go take out the forest, fight a big battle with Humbaba, the the dryad that's protecting the forest. And so it's this theme of deforestation as an act of war, as an act of imperialism. And yeah, Inanna is not, or Ishtar, whichever version she is in that story, is not happy 
that they did that. And so she sends the bull of heaven down to take them out and it ends up killing Enkidu. And it's a very sad thing, the death of Enkidu. But it's all because this patriarchal symbol of Gilgamesh decided to destroy a tree that was sacred to the goddess. And we see it again in the Hellenistic story. Uh, this time it's Demeter's poplar tree, which is the prime poplar where all the nymphs and dryads hang out. Anyone who's anyone is dancing at this poplar tree. Mm-hmm. And this king, Erisictaon, decides to destroy all the trees because, you know, big, bad, evil, patriarchy. And Demeter, chillingly graphic story, Demeter appears to him, pleads with him not to cut down the tree. He cuts down the tree because that's his thing. This story wouldn't really continue well if he didn't. And so she sends off for the goddess of hunger, Limnos, to go after King Orisithion. And he sells all of his stuff to just buy food. And he's just engorging himself, but he's always hungry. And in some references, I see possibly Dionysus being involved. Turns out Dionysus is a tree spirit, among Mm. other things. He's connected with the pine tree. And one of his epithets is Dionysus dentrites, also a dryad because he's everything that's cool. And so he probably sends a a little madness, a little hallucination. He ends up selling his daughter in order to get more money to continue to consume Luckily, his daughter has an old fling in Poseidon who gives her the power to shapeshift. And so every time he sells her, she shapeshifts into like a horse and trots back or money-making scheme. He keeps selling her. But even that can't fulfill his hunger. So he ends up eating her. And then he ends up eating himself. And it just seems like a really important story about the way we've been treating the earth as resource. Mm -hmm. He severed the connection with nature as spirit and being in relationship with it and then he was just overtaken by insatiable greed and hunger that could never be filled and like all right capitalism i see yeah yeah you know that's that's definitely what capitalism has done yeah i was thinking that that's also the plot of princess mononoke oh yes it totally is the plot of princess mononoke yeah yeah the spiritual aspect of dimension of trees is just so prevalent throughout mythology and humans, in some cases, the only forests that have been allowed to remain are forests that have somehow imposed fear on us Mm -hmm. that Mm -hmm. if we were to do something to these forests, that there would be consequences for whatever supernatural reasons or even just these particular forests have become haunted in ways that protect themselves, that's adaptive. And you see this with the suicide forest, the Ayokakara forest, which is located on the slopes of Mount Fuji, is known as the Sea of Trees, but it's also known Mm. as the suicide forest because it's a popular place for people to commit suicide, which is one of those aspects to Japanese culture that Mm. suicide isn't necessarily seen as something that is a sin. And that, of course, with their hyper-consumeristic capitalist culture that prioritizes work productivity with also the pluralistic 
duty to be a good employer and worker and have whatever job you do, you do to the best of your ability. It has created this situation where a lot of, especially younger people, just feel completely alienated. And Mm. this forest is one of the places that people go to kill themselves. And this has been something that's documented throughout the history of the forest. And it's also given this forest this eerie mythology and infamous reputation, even though the forest itself is a rather lovely forest. I mean, it's on the slopes of Mount Fuji and it has a lot of beautiful native species, but it's that infamous reputation that has allowed this forest to become this symbol of Mm -hmm. the sort of darker aspects of Japanese culture and also instill fear in the people. That reminds me of the fairy tree tradition in Ireland Mm -hmm. as well. Just this definitely fearing the fae and messing with them and kind of like the story of Demeter. Right. Actually, of what can befall someone who cuts down one of these trees or or messes with it. And yeah, when Trogan and I were were visiting Ireland, we got to visit a very powerful Mayhaw tree at the hill of Usnak and left our offerings and were able to sort of sit in its presence for a little bit. But yeah, it turns out fear is one of those things that can actually motivate us not to destroy. Yeah, and you see that with the Hoya Forest in Romania, which Mm, is known mm -hmm. as the Bermuda Triangle of Transylvania. Whoa. And this is one of the few places where you see in continental Europe old growth trees is because the forest is known for all kinds of strange, mysterious phenomena, and it has a bunch of weird UFO conspiracy theories around it. And the same thing you see for the Black Forest, which is located in Germany. And Mm -hmm. the Black Forest is actually the longest continuous undisturbed forest in continental Europe. Whoa. And that was in large part because this forest instilled fear in people because of the reputation of if you went into that forest to try to extract some of its resources or cut down some of the wood, the fair folk in that forest would punish you. Historically, you know, forests were dangerous places Mm -hmm. for spiritual reasons, animal reasons, other human reasons. They were, or they still are liminal in all of the best ways, but also some of the more sinister ways that liminality can express itself. Just probably why there are places where that are associated with power. Right. And also that this mystique of these forests has the adaptive benefit of making people too afraid to disturb them in ways that other parts of the forests have been cut down. The cultural paradigm of these forests having to be protected because of the punitive reasons, which isn't the best reason to protect a forest. But hey, if if it's getting the job done, then (laughs) maybe we need to have more punitive mythology around chopping down trees. In the Amazon rainforest, which is one Mm. of the most important habitats on the planet, it's just this constant loss of forests. And Google Earth recently did a project where you can see images of where the last remaining old growth Amazon rainforests are located. That's always one of those huge bummer topics is just knowing how 
quickly were losing the Amazon because of, in a lot of reasons, poverty and then land theft from indigenous people, especially right. in Brazil. I think largely for mining, for and agriculture, agriculture for cattle. Yeah. Yes. And once yeah. they chop down these trees, the forest is gone. It won't be able to recover. Right. Right. You can't just flip a switch on and off with ecosystems. I, come on, it. Oh, no, there's that uh, whole thing called succession that takes uh, a really long time. Humans don't really understand well enough to <laughs> implement. Blasphemy, blasphemy. Yes. You do see, and there are a few places where humans have done some incredibly stupid things that have prevented us from being able to access areas such in the Chernobyl mm, exclusion mm-hmm. zone, which is this beautiful, lush forest that's all radioactive. And right. it has been able to grow pretty much without human involvement for almost 50 years now. And so there are places where humans have already caused our environmental degradation and damage that's so profound that we can't participate in that ecosystem anymore. And that's what you see in Chernobyl. Right. Yeah. So yeah, now that we're talking about contemporary forests and trees, a couple of things that I wanted to mention. One was the tree equity score. Yes. It's something that's really easily accessible to find lots of maps and analyses online. And it's a tool that I highly recommend people play around with, where we can see what neighborhoods have tree density and what neighborhoods don't. And it also goes into a lot of really good detail about access to trees as a social justice issue as as far as how clean the environments are and the temperatures and the fluctuations in temperature and the protection against certain kinds of extreme weather events, whether or not a city or town devotes the resources to promoting forestation in different neighborhoods says a lot about how our public management and public funds are being spent and on whom and who benefits from that and who doesn't. And I'm sure it's almost not even worth it to waste the breath on saying that, of course, this is something that hits poor people in communities of color and leads to massive quality of life inequalities that are totally unnecessary. Right. And then I also wanted to mention that there are a lot of groups out there that are posting really good resistance who are speaking for the trees, if you will. And, you know, we hear a lot about plant a tree and give this organization a dollar to plant a tree. And I'm not saying that it's necessarily bad to support planting trees, but it just seems much more sensible to not destroy the ecosystem in the first place. The main one that comes to mind from my own experience is Kentuckians for the Commonwealth in Lexington. They're a multi-focus organization, but they were founded in and continue to do a lot of work around environmental degradation in Appalachia and strip mining mm-hmm. and mountaintop removal. But KFTC, if any listeners are in Kentucky, I definitely recommend looking into what they do. There are other groups out there at the national level, the Sierra Club, United Mountain Defense, Mountain Justice. Do you know of any organiza- like forest-based organizations up in the Pacific Northwest? Oh, yeah. Out here, there is a lot more access, even in our urban environments, to trees. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, Portland is a very green city. There's a lot of forests. There's a lot of parks. There's a lot of trees. Yeah, there's the organizations that are really crucial out here. Organizations that are coalition building, both mm-hmm. between the tribes and then the Forest Service to help with the more integrated management. I can put some of the links for some of the good organizations to look into in the show notes. Another way that I wanted to encourage our listeners to network with important trees is through this heritage tree program. And there's a heritage tree program in just about every state, but The cool thing about this is that it gives education about culturally or biologically significant trees in your area. There's some really cool information where you can get out and learn about different trees that have had both cultural and biological significance. Some of the really interesting trees that I've encountered, like the octopus tree, which is a Sitka spruce tree on the Oregon coast, is a heritage tree. And then the largest black cottonwood in the country is also a heritage tree. If you are looking to both educate yourself as well as connect with some of these trees that have become entities within their own right, Mm -hmm. this is a really good program to spend some time going through and finding all of the cool heritage trees in your area. And I can put some links on that. And then there are some interesting ideas about trees as sovereign beings. And this was something we wanted to talk about as rounding out this episode. And one of the trees is actually not too far from you. It's this interesting tree in Georgia. Do you want to maybe talk a little bit about it? It's one that I heard about a long time ago and then it fell out of my head and you reminded me about it before this episode. And I looked on the map. Oh, it's next to the hotel that I often stay at. I spend a lot of time in Athens, Georgia. You may have seen me at the Athens Pagan Pride Festival, but no, Athens is a wonderful town. It's where the University of Georgia is located. And yeah, there is this tree that owns itself that I imagine I've walked by. Hopefully I've been nice enough to say hi to it. I'm super excited to go back and find it next time I'm there. Get a picture. Get a picture. Oh yeah, that'll be fun. So according to the Athens, Georgia tourism website, the tree that owns itself right in downtown Athens, its status as a self-owning entity goes back to 1890 when it was deeded possession of itself and is currently cared for by the Junior Ladies Garden Club. So I'm not actually sure what it means that it owns itself. It says that nobody has contested the tree's property rights. So that Colonel William Jackson deeded the tree its possession of itself and all the land within eight feet of the trunk. And nobody has challenged its property rights. So I suspect if somebody was going to make a case for cutting down that tree, that would be the point where this would be challenged. But it doesn't seem like that has been a problem. And the people have enjoyed having this tree as something that the tourism Mm -hmm. website and marketing folks in Georgia at Athens, Georgia have decided that this is merits its own mention when you visit Athens. And I think this is an interesting model. What if we did this for all of the trees that we have given names to? 
once a tree becomes an entity within its own right, it gains its sovereignty and that it is protected mm-hmm. as the entity having inherent sacred value in of itself and not just as a resource to take whenever we feel is necessary. And I think that is an important step in changing our perspective. Yeah. And, you know, I'm not surprised that the tree that owns itself is in Athens, having hung out there a good bit. Athens has a lot of publicly protected, beautiful parks and lots of natural, well-managed natural space. And in part, at least for the last long time, it's been able to do that because of the money of the University of Georgia brings in and the people who work at the university are willing to pay taxes to have a beautiful space. And I know you you and I grew up really in a very lush forested area, but growing up, I had almost no access to it except the Arboretum because it was all privately owned and all people with shotguns get off my land or my dog will bite you. It was really strange. Maybe it might be one reason that I love trees so much now is that I grew up and very much enjoyed the trees in my yard, but I was constantly surrounded by trees that were technically off limits Mm -hmm. to me. Yeah. Yeah, but if and, they had owned themselves, we could have just hung out and been fine. Right, exactly. And then that tree would be saved for future generations because right. the tree will outlive us. Once a tree reaches the point where it's named, it deserves its own rights. That's just something I want to put out in the zeitgeist is that trees deserve their own rights. And of course, we can't ascribe rights to every tree, as we were talking about earlier, because there is in certain cases, especially here in the forest in the West, where there's a lot of overgrowth Mm -hmm. and trees that have to be removed. But if a tree has been in the historical format that is important, both culturally to us, that is a reason to give it its own rights so that that tree will be someone that future generations get to know. Yeah, I like that. I also like the idea of ecosystems having Mm -hmm. their own rights because, you know, I'm looking at this beautiful tree that owns itself in Athens and it is Mm -hmm. lovely, but it's in the middle of a sidewalk. There are other trees around, but it's not really part of a forest. And this Mm -hmm. could be a mother tree for an amazing forest ecosystem. So Maybe two different tacks, two different strategies, but forests. Yay, trees. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Well, Angel, have we spoken for the trees today? I think we have. We definitely have spoken for the trees today. Before we end this episode, we should let folks know about our Patreon. Oh, yeah. So that anyone out there listening that really enjoyed our talk about trees can help support the podcast because we live in late stage capitalism, as we know, know, and your support of the podcast really helps us to be able to continue this project. And we just had a new Patreon supporter join us. So that's really exciting. And when you join our Patreon, there's some really cool stuff that you get access to at the $10 a month level. Inku and I are developing a template to read birth charts. And this is something that we're going to really start integrating more into the highest level of support, the science, which coven level in the next couple of months, because I'm actually going to be teaching a class on how to read your birth chart. 
And nice. so as I'm doing that, I want to have the function stacking of giving that to our Patreon supporters. Also, we will read tarot at that level for you. Mm-hmm. We'll do a private Zoom session and read your tarot. And then we're doing twice per year subscription boxes, subscription boxes. of herbal teas and concoctions and other artistic goodies that are seasonal and created by myself, harvested or grown or procured by myself and created into either theme or episode themed or just general wellness themed or seasonally themed subscription boxes. So once a year around Imolk. Well, once a year around Imolk and once a year around Lunasa is, is what we've been working on. And then at our next level, we have our sticker exchange, which is $5 a month. And we're always having interesting artists collaborate with us to create these stickers. I will be sending out the stickers of Hecate, mm-hmm. which will have a follow-up. Not Hecate. Not Hecate, though right. they do have correspondences. And I'm going to talk about that in the Deity Deep Dives episode that I'll be putting out on the main RSS feed about Hecate, who is the frog-headed mm-hmm. goddess. And she is the goddess of transformation and of springtime and fertility. But we have other stickers from other artists in our Science Witch Coven, including my sister-in-law, who's just putting the final touches on the Freya sticker I've been really excited about releasing. And you've also contributed art to our sticker exchange for Lou. Yeah, with Bridget and Lou. I started working through my friends in the Celtic Pantheon, in the Irish Celtic Pantheon. Yeah. And we also have had artists that were on the show that have now contributed to our sticker exchange. Like Tikva. Oh my gosh. Yes. And if you want to be creeped out and inspired, yeah, definitely check that one out. The Lobe sticker is so good. Yeah, it is. It is super meta. And it's like, you know, if you want somebody not to touch your laptop and you put that on the back of it, I feel like it could be a a deterrence. Like the forest security system of just being so scary, nobody wants to touch it. I feel like it has that energy. Absolutely. That protective energy. Yeah. And then at our basic level of support, the $1 a month level, you still get a lot of really cool stuff. We do Patreon episodes of the Who's in Bloom. And also we do episodes for DD Deep Dives that only Patreon listeners can access. And then we also put various different recipes. We do tarot spreads. There's all sorts of various different myriad of ADHD gifts that we bring and curate on our Patreon for our, our Patreon supporters. Or produce in response to requests from Patreon supporters as well. We've done spells and just different things that our patrons have asked for and ADHD impulse to say, oh yeah, that's a great idea. Let's do that. Yes. If you can't support the Science Witch Podcast Project monetarily, you can always give us a review and give us five stars on the platform that you listen to us on that totally helps and support us. And of course, just listening always is so exciting. And as our project continues to evolve and develop, thanks to, in part, the collaboration with our producer, Daniel. Yeah, hi, Daniel. We have so many cool things coming up. We are going to be doing now two 
events at Mystic South that yeah. in July, we're going to be doing a panel on the ways that science and witchcraft intersect, interact and affirm one another. And then we're going to be doing a drum circle. So if you happen to be in Atlanta, I believe it's July 13th through the 16th, Mystic South will be there. Also, we have started putting some of our older Who's in Bloom episodes on our YouTube channel, and they will have the captions. So any of our listeners that are deaf can also enjoy our Who's in Bloom episodes via a more visual medium. And I'm going to be adding more things to the YouTube channel as we continue. It, it's one of those things that I'm trying to integrate slowly into the project. Yeah, check us out on YouTube if you happen to be somebody who needs more visual aids to access the information. I think that about rounds us out for the things we wanted to talk about for supporting the podcast. Kind I of wanted with- to... Close us out with a quote by Daniel Tigner, their book, Canadian Forest Tree Essences, Vibrational Healing Through Natural Resonance of Trees. Hmm. Tigner writes, trees collect energy, heat from the sun, but perhaps other invisible forms of cosmic energy that have been described by, for example, the Chinese and Indian traditions. In China, one name for this energy is qi, Indian yoga, it is called prana. According to yoga, when we breathe, we not only take in oxygen, but life energy, as if oxygen is the outer content and the inner juice is the prana. You can call it factor X. Ask why you feel so nourished in the presence of a great tree or in the forest. Is it the oxygen alone or in addition, an unbeknown energy factor at work? Yeah, that's the thing to think about. So Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the podcast. If you want to share with us, we would love to hear from you. If you have a special tree in your life, let us know. We would be delighted to read about it and with your permission, share it on our social media. And yeah, yeah, look out for more awesome episodes. The Science Witch Podcast, DD Deep Dives and Who's in Bloom. And if your thirst for Science Witch Podcast trees has not yet been slated, then check out episode 19 on Big Tree Energy, my first episode on the podcast from two years ago. Right. All right. Well, once again, thank you all for listening and live long and prosper. And blessed be.